Romans chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Are those in your notes? Okay, let's read them out loud together, okay? Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. There's a sense in which... Now, the disadvantage is last week we had the threat of bad weather that didn't really materialize much. But we didn't have church last Sunday night, so it's been a couple of weeks. But if you can flash back two weeks... There's a sense in which verses 12 and 13, they, they run on naturally from verses 10 and 11. Let me just read those to you. We, these are the ones we studied two weeks ago. Verses 10 and 11, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then these words, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit serve the Lord. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And you, you, you can read that, living in the kind of world we do with the kind of problems we face. That, that verse, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. It can seem, I don't know, a bit unrealistic. We're told to, to keep serving the Lord, and not only that, but to keep serving him with, with a passionate heart with a fervent heart, not just in the early stages, but into your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, your 80s. Keep serving the Lord with zeal. And it's that last part that, that can seem a little out of reach. You probably live your Christian life like I live mine. I mean, we all have times when our spiritual passion kind of soars and rises high. We have impassioned moments. And for the other times, well, we kind of have developed a theology that reminds us that, well, we don't live the Christian life by feelings. We don't live it by emotions. We obey and we make our feelings follow. And there's an element of truth to that, no question. So in case we think Paul lived in a different world than we, keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord, it's interesting that it's almost as though he anticipates that and says in our text tonight, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. So somehow, keeping my spiritual zeal, it fits with tribulation in this world. And not getting things as quickly as I would like because I have to be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, Keep serving, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality. So we keep our spiritual fervor while we recognize that people, all sorts of people right here in this church are going to have needs that are too big for them to handle by themselves. You're going to have to help with that. They can't carry the problems all alone. And Paul says that fits with keeping your spiritual fervor. So when he says keep, keep your spiritual fervor, he doesn't mean become unrealistic about the kind of world you're serving in. This is not a little pep room talk. It's, it's thought through. It's serious. Point number one. This world is the place for our service, and I would underline service, but it's not the place for our hope, and I would underline hope. 
You, you see this most clearly when you link together the last phrase of verse 11 with the first phrase of verse 12. So, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope. And, and Paul has kind of already taught about the, the nature of that kind of hope. We've been looking at that Sunday mornings. But he's, he's taught about this hope in Romans 8, 24. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? So you're going to see this world with all its problems. This is where you serve. It's the real world. It's the place you serve, but it's not the place you hope. You, you're, you're hoping for something that you can't quite see yet. It isn't finished yet. It hasn't made itself vivid yet. So this world is the place where I have to give expression to my devotion to Jesus. I can't just sing about how much I love him. I have to serve. This is where we serve. This is where we are to be our Lord's hands and feet. This is where we build Christ's kingdom among the needy, among the broken. But this world is not the place where we set our hope. It's a good thing, isn't it? Anybody that served the Lord for any length of time knows that uh, the results you're seeking when you serve the Lord never come as quickly as you would like. Has anybody else noticed that? Many seeds get planted, and a lot of them take their own sweet time germinating. So that means this world is a great place to spend your life in service, but it's a terrible place to set the thrill of your soul with hope. Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen, If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So this world, all by itself, this world doesn't deliver high on hope. Serve here. There's nowhere else. Don't set your hopes here. And that's the way it's supposed to be. This world isn't the object of my hope. It's the object of my service. So, so where, does, where does hope come from? How, how do we keep spending our lives patiently, faithfully for Christ in a world that so frequently gives there's so little payback? Look again at those striking words in Romans 8.24 where it says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? And, and everything that my senses, they work this way, that everything I do for Jesus in this world, I want to see something happening. I want to see it. And Paul says, well, hope that is seen isn't hope. Who hopes for what he sees? The phrase to note is that first one. For in this hope we were saved. Being saved. You're saved. Maybe you could pick a date. You gave your heart to Jesus. You, you were saved. So salvation all by itself is, is all about coming into this realm of hope. In this hope you have been saved. So here's the irony when we think about service in this world and our invisible hope. 
And I think we're meant to think it through. Because a lot of people will say, if you set your mind on a future, eternal, glorious hope, it's just going to keep you from being any earthly good. That's the argument. That pie-in-the-sky stuff. So heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. And it's not true. The people who are the most earthly good are people who have a solid, eternal hope. Don't be intimidated just by humanitarianism. Maybe we need to say it all over again. The Christian does not hope in this world. We're not going to change this world, at least not substantially. We're not going to change it. We're not going to redeem this world on our own. The Bible nowhere gives the impression that this world is just going to keep getting better and better. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 11 and 12. Here's what the Bible says about the future of this world. Indeed, 2 Timothy 3, 12. All who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So there's your starting point. 13. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So, as a follower of Christ, you're going to be persecuted. Point number one. Point number two, this world is going to go from being evil to being worse. That's point number two. So, how does this hope thing work? Isn't that, that's a fair question. And he says, this is, this is where you serve. There's going to be so much to be done, but this is not where you anchor your hope. Boy, we used to believe, we used to believe that each generation, each new generation kind of started out freshly where the last one left off, moving kind of onward and upward. There's just an inevitable flow of progress each generation standing on the shoulders of the one that preceded it. But outside of technological advance and scientific advance, not many people are gullible enough to believe that anymore. I was thinking about this. When I I was a kid, when I was a kid, and that's not like when dinosaurs roamed the earth. I think of all the summer evenings where... We would go outside when we were kids and we would play, the neighborhood kids. And it'd be a beautiful summer evening and you'd just go with the neighborhood kids and all the things you would play, all the games you would play, and you'd just play till it was dark and when the street lights came on, you hopped on your bike and you rode home. There were no cell phones. Nobody called. Nobody checked to see if you were okay. Nobody was worried you were kidnapped. I mean, I know there were some exceptions. I know bad things happened. I get it. I'm talking about as a general rule... Nobody worried about any of those things. I hear my mother calling out the door, Donnie, time to come home, wherever you were. You'd dilly-dally for another 15 minutes or so. Then you'd come home, hide-and-seek, take the flag, cops and robbers, baseball on the street, no cell phones, nobody called to check if we were all right. Nobody worried about that. Nobody had to call. There was never any reason to assume we wouldn't be all right. I never heard of anyone who worried about 
tearing around until it was dark and then riding his bike home alone in the dark at the end of a beautiful summer evening. Generally, that's just the way it used to be. Who in his right mind would say we've improved from that? Anybody? I never saw a police officer at my public school. There were no handguns or metal detectors. There were some big moral issues. My teacher panicked if she caught us chewing gum in class. I once was lectured for not standing up when I answered a teacher. So with all of our sophistication and all of our technology, have we made the world better than it used to be? If anyone is setting his hope on creating peace and love here on earth, now on earth, boy, hope's going to run thin. No. To serve, says Paul, to serve this world with passion and joy, you have to, you have, to have the big picture right. It's the same theme that Paul introduced in Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? There's your hope. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What a great phrase. Rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's that's what we're looking forward to in hope while we serve in this dark world. The glory of God. Little motivational pep talks are no match for the blight of sin and the despair of the fall that pollutes this world. But God is going to do something glorious. Christ is returning. We're serving with a view to a new creation, not just the fruit of our own small efforts. We have a message. We have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We have a coming king, and that leads into Paul's next thought. Point number two. Because we have this certain hope, we serve the Lord with strength, the strength of patience. Do you see it in verse 12? Rejoice in hope. The hope you can't see yet, that one. Be patient in tribulation. Someone might think an eternal hope just leads to earthly indifference, and Paul says that's not the case. Rejoicing in an eternal hope means you can serve with patience. We rejoice in hope. We're patient in tribulation. So there's this tribulation. It wars against almost all earthly hopes. Tribulation is what pushes in the opposite direction of our fervency that he talked about in verse 11. Keep your spiritual fervor. And Paul says that this eternal hope that brings a quiet, persistent strength of patience into all that we do. Christians know that their labor is never in vain. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. See, I can, I, can, I can find an avenue of service, some area of ministry, and, and can keep going, even through difficult times, as long as I know that it's not for nothing. See, that's the hope killer. And Paul said, when you have this eternal hope in Christ, eternal reward, 
you, you labor with patience because you know whatever you get or don't get in terms of earthly recognition, earthly praise, earthly visible results, quick enough right in front of your face, whatever you don't get, you know it is never empty. It's not vain. Not ever is it vain. Those are wonderful words. Our work for the Lord should be steadfast, he says, immovable. We know that in the Lord, in the Lord, he says, your labor is not in vain. I want to talk about what being patient in tribulation means, and we're almost done. Being patient in tribulation means we see all trials as temporary. We, we know that. We know that at least on an earthly level. Nothing including our earthly lives lasts forever. So yes, all our trials are temporary. But that's not really what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about seeing all the trials and troubles that you face as you serve the Lord while you're alive, the the trials that come from serving the Lord in a world like ours, that they're, they're to be compared. They're nothing when you compare them to the eternal engine of our hope. And here's the text I like. 2 Corinthians 4. Let me just pull out some verses. So we'll read 7 to 10 and then 16 through 18. We have this treasure. So we, we've, Christ has come into our hearts. The Holy Spirit regenerates, redeems God's children. So we have this treasure. But we have it in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now here's Paul. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. I want you to see the difference now between the circumstances and his hope. That's what he's talking about. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, not destroyed. You see the contrast? Here's what's going on as I'm serving Jesus. None of those things is very good. None of them reaches my hope. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 16. So we do not lose heart. That's another term for hope. Though our outward nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's what he's been doing up till this point, comparing. As we look, remember what he said before, who hopes for what he sees? Remember? Now he's saying the same thing. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul, where do you get your strength for all these things? I serve here. And lots of times I get pretty beat up. But I'm patient through it all. Why, Paul? I've got an eternal hope. Then these things, they can't can't reach it. They can't touch it. Show me a Christian that's frustrated, angry, 
resentful and wanting to quit. And I'll show you a Christian who somewhere, just through being beat up by life, somewhere has lost sight of his eternal hope. It happens. He's not denying the reality of his trials, but he's making hope the engine, not the circumstances. This is how hope makes us, here's the phrase we're looking at, patient in tribulation. Okay, B, patient in tribulation means allowing tribulation to teach us and produce in us the things that that only tribulation can teach. I had a couple texts. I'm just going to the James one if you're trying to follow along. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. Think about that for a minute. What if, what if you, you're traveling now, you're on the road and you're doing seminars. You're traveling from city to city, town to town. You've got a big name, they're booking you. You're filling up large auditoriums and your seminar is, come tonight, come tonight, because when you leave, you will know the secret, I guarantee it. You will know the secret to being perfect, complete, perfect you're going to be. Complete and not lacking anything. I guarantee it if you come tonight, 50 bucks, come to my seminar, and that's, that's what you're going to leave with. And people would come. And then you said, here it is. Trials. You need trials. He said, no, no. The seminar was, I want to be perfect. I want to be complete. I want my best life now. Lacking nothing. Okay, let's take out God's word. And we read together. Trials, tribulations, count it all joy, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you will be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. If, if you don't let trials destroy your hope, here's the thing. If you set your hope in this world and you're not patient in tribulation, the trials will just suck the life out of you. If your hope is set on eternity and you keep that refreshed in your mind and in your heart, then the trials not only, here's the deal, not only do they not destroy you, but in terms of this goal over here, they will make you perfect, complete, Lacking nothing. That's a great deal. Go to point number three. Only people who steadfastly serve will become people who faithfully pray. You notice that 12th verse? Rejoice in hope. We talked about that. Patient in tribulation. We talked about that. Be constant in prayer prayer. You want to make any congregation on earth feel guilty, all you do is you talk about our prayerlessness. And there's just nothing that puts condemnation on us quicker than that because we all know that we ought to pray more than we pray. So what is the problem? Not enough books on prayer? 
praying doesn't come that way. Do you notice how he says rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, and all of that follows the last part of verse 11 about keeping your spiritual fervor. So keeping your spiritual fervor comes from rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. Prayer is born in hearts that habitually give themselves over to service that they know is too big for them. We don't pray enough because we don't stretch ourselves enough in service. You, you pray when you find you're giving your life to a cause that is too big for you and it forces you to rely on God. Prayer is born in hearts that engage the brokenness and the fallenness of this world. You find prayer in mission. You find prayer in sacrifice. You won't pray because of a lecture. Prayer comes from being stretched in God's cause beyond your own resources. Patience comes, prayer comes from knowing that there's no survival. There will be no patience in tribulation until we are constant at prayer. Four, and we'll wrap up. Christians who serve hopefully and patiently discover they aren't the only ones who experience tribulation. Now, you need to get a running start now because we've been picking apart the bones of this text. Let's take the whole fish. 12 and 13. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Okay, we've talked about each of those phrases, how they relate to keeping your spiritual fervor in verse 11. And then, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You wouldn't, you wouldn't see the connection unless you thought back a little bit. And I know it's hard when you don't have it all in front of you, but in, in verses 4 and 5 of this chapter, we took quite a while talking about these words. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, then this phrase, so we, though many, we, right here in this room, though many, we're one body. One body in Christ. If your body is healthy, which part of it can be in pain and the rest of your body not feel it? If you have an abscessed tooth or a screaming migraine, do you really stop and think, you know, the rest of my body feels pretty good? It's just that one part that seems to be hurting. It's not, that isn't the way it works. It's not the way it works. When you're sick, it's the whole you that's sick. Even though, in reality, it might just be one small part that's infected. Such is the fellowship in the body of Christ. When you start serving the Lord, he says it's a world full of tribulation. You have to be patient. Patient in tribulation. And what you discover is you're not the only one in tribulation. That's, that's part of being attached to a body. Such is the fellowship in Christ. 
we can't just be kind of caring one for another. Paul uses that word seek. On, on, on the lookout for opportunities. We pray about this a lot more than you realize, you know. In churches all over North America, heads will bow, people will stand at the close of a service, and they'll quote 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with you all till Jesus comes and everybody devoutly says, Amen. And then we go home. What is, what is that what is that fellowship of the Holy Spirit thing? What it means is the Holy Spirit creates a fellowship. Not The Holy Spirit creates a fellowship not just with you, but between you. He makes this body of Christ thing more than a doctrine. He makes it a functional reality. We are members one of another. So buy a food basket. Bring a bunch of stuff to bread of life. Maybe you can help out with church in the city. Look for someone who's lonely and needs someone to take them out for lunch. Because we really are members one of another really are members one of another. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. How do I do it? And it's not just come over to the sunny side of the street. That 12th verse just unfolds those phrases of, 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 of how that gets implemented in our lives. Hope in eternity, not in results in this world. Patient in tribulation. Because you know it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen as quickly as you'd like. Your hope isn't anchored here. And constant at prayer. You can read it in just a minute or two, but it's a way of life. It's a way of life that's to occupy the body of Christ until Jesus comes again. Let's pray.